You're listening to the Christian Humanist Radio Network, christianhumanist.org. This is the Christian Humanist Podcast, a weekly discussion of theology, philosophy, literature, art, and other things that human beings do well. And now your hosts, David Grubbs, Nathan Gilmore, and Michael Fox. Thanks for downloading another episode of the Christian Humanist Podcast. This is episode 207, and I'm Nathan Gilmore. I'm an associate professor of English here at Emmanuel College in Franklin Springs, Georgia. Uh, and just to show you that it's the first episode of the semester, I almost got my own college's name wrong there. <laughs> I am joined online today uh, by Dr. David Grubbs. He is an assistant professor of English at Houston Baptist University. David, why is it that I can get your college right and not mine? Oh, the, um, I, we'd have to page Dr. Freud on that one. Um, <laughs> I certainly don't have any answers. I'm just glad that, that it's not me hosting today. And coming at you from the great white <laughs> north and promising only to say two sentences about the weather, we have Dr. Michael Farmer, an assistant professor of English at Crown College in St. Bonifacius, Minnesota. Michael, uh, what's it like in the great white north? Well, it's weird because uh, we used to record very early in the morning, and it's 10 o'clock right now. I, I, I'm not sure the last time I recorded in a fully lit room. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, guys, uh, you know, while I've been uh, on the road, uh, of course, the Christian Humanist podcast uh, has been on a, a fairly lengthy break, but the Christian Humanist radio network has not slept. Uh, what are some of the highlights from you know, the new year and the first week of the Trump era. I think we got to talk about the massive city of man on J.D. Vance's uh, Hillbilly Elegy, which included... Oh, that uh, was such a good episode. It, it really, really was. was. That, that, yeah. that, is, uh, that, that made me proud to be part of this network. Mm-hmm. Uh, not that all our other episodes don't, but that one in particular did. Mm. So listeners, what he's saying is when uh, he thinks about me and regrets starting this thing at all... He listens to City of Man, and he says, no, this might be worthwhile. Nice. I, I want to give a, a, a shout-out, too, to, uh, to Coyle and, and Jordan Poss for uh, their, their conversation about uh, Roman civil life. That, I thought that was actually really, really interesting, and uh, I, I actually plan on assigning it to my students when we get to the Aeneid, and they need some kind of sense of what, uh, what Romanitas means. Very um, good. Yeah. I, the the I haven't listened to it yet, but I know the Christian Feminist podcast just put it on an episode with two of their new panelists, including our old friend uh, Christina Bieber Lake. Oh, cool! Excellent, excellent. Well, folks, as you hear, I mean, there's lots going on on the network. Of course, we announced the drop of all of these episodes on ChristianHumanist.org, and you can find all of these streams on iTunes. But we're not here to talk about that. We come here to talk about the draft. Uh, no, actually, we uh, came here to talk about John Locke. Uh, and today's subject matter is going to be his letter concerning toleration from 1689. Uh, Michael, I want to I want to jump in with the fact that I had forgotten, honestly, in the years since I read it last, that Locke begins his appeal specifically to the church, not first to the civil government. So, for Locke, why is toleration the mark of the true church? And for Locke, what does toleration seem to mean? Well, it mostly seems to mean leaving various Christian sects alone to practice their faith as they see fit. And in fact, at the very beginning, it makes it sound like he's not including anything that's not Christian, although later he does back that off a little bit and, and at least leave hints that anybody should be allowed to practice whatever faith they want, provided it doesn't conflict with the secular laws of the country. Mm-hmm. Um, does, it, does he mention yeah. Jews in particular at one point, or am I thinking mm-hmm. of another text? I know he mentions Muslims. I don't remember mm-hmm. if he mentions Jews or not. Okay, very I, good. Ca- ca- carry on, carry on. Those, those of our readers who don't know the history of religious persecution in Europe may be surprised to learn that it is less. it would be more surprising for him to mention Jews than to mention Muslims. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm not sure England had any Jews at the time Locke is writing. 
come to think of it. Um, it would have been after the Commonwealth, wouldn't it? So, I mean, I, I know that during the Commonwealth with um, Cromwell and such, I mean, Jews were welcomed back into England. Okay. Yeah. I, I just knew they were kind of tossed out, uh, you know, in the early modern era. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, and then, you know, sort of suspiciously tolerated as, you know, physicians and moneylenders for a spell. But uh, but I, I do think, and, and here, I mean, you know, our, our friends over at the Christian Feminist Podcast who uh, were almost certain that I was present in courses when we did this in graduate school are very disappointed in me because I should remember this. <laughs> um, the, the vision Locke puts out, is the idea that no church has any kind of political advantage over any other church. No church rules the state. And the magistrate, while he belongs perhaps to a particular sect, doesn't favor any particular sect in a political way. So that is the practical, that is a practical meaning of toleration um, in this, in this letter. He says, as you said, I esteem that toleration, uh, I esteem toleration to be the chief characteristic mark of the, true church, which means he's putting it above doctrine and ritual. Mm-hmm. So, so if you're the true church, it doesn't matter what you believe. It doesn't matter what... Well, uh, it does matter. It does matter, it but matters. not as much as... <laughs> the, the, true, the, the chief characteristic mark. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is a true Enlightenment church, right? Where he, He's writing in the age of civilized conversation and string quartets, and, and his vision of what <laughs> constitutes the new church is that they behave, essentially... Uh, it's also built quite openly on relativism because nobody can agree what orthodoxy and orthopraxis are. He says several times, every church is orthodox to itself. But because mm-hmm. that's true, we can recognize true Christians by the way they treat other people. Orthodoxy and orthopraxis end up being oftentimes screens for, uh, for power grabs. So he's mm-hmm. almost like proto-Nietzschean in that sense. Mm-hmm. And he says that the genuine, con- uh, the genu- genuine Christian will turn all his condemnation inwards He'll avoid sin, and then he'll allow other people, Christians or otherwise, to follow their consciences. So that's what toleration means, um, both in the civil context and in the religious context. Am I leaving something out? David, do you hear anything in there that, uh, or do you, I guess, not hear anything in there that you should have heard in there? <laughs> well, there are some there are some moves that he makes to to ground um, what he means by toleration as the chief characteristic mark of the true church uh, he goes on to uh, to then describe this behavior in terms of charity meekness and goodwill towards mankind um, and when he starts using that language uh, he's he's you you you, sh- you should start to hear some new testament chiming in your head um, he quotes jesus saying the kings of the gentiles exercise leadership over them um uh, Lord over them is the way some translations render it, mm-hmm. um, but you shall not be so. And the, and you know if you know that text, that's the one in which Jesus says, um, "The one who will be greatest among you will be the least." Um, and so that that kind of uh, uh, it shows up in in John's letters where he talks about the thing that will mark you among among uh, uh, among people is the way that you love each other. Um, and so he he at least makes some kind of attempt to anchor what he's talking about within that kind of discourse. Um, I think we can quibble with how successful he is in in that. But yeah, uh, but oh, and we least, will, we he will. Does it, he does at least make he does at least make the gesture. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I agree with Michael. I mean, this is just the picture of you know the Enlightenment's vision of a church, right? I mean, this is. Uh, people who turn their condemnation inward. This is something that is, I mean, almost exclusively focused on uh, self-improvement. There's not much of a sense that the other people might have a defective notion of self-improvement, you know, something like you might see in in the work of James K.A. Smith or something like that, where there's a genuine counter-formation at the heart of the church. But instead... um, you know, we can basically agree that, you know, there is a standard of good human life towards which they're all striving. So just quit messing with each other and let them self-improve. Well, and, and the other thing, the other thing I think you see here is that churches are relatively minor people, uh, part of these people's lives, or maybe just to put it this way, 
what what he's interested in is church and not religion. He he seems to think church is like well, we'll talk about it in a minute. A voluntary society. It's this thing mm-hmm. you do a couple times a week, maybe, but the rest of the time you belong to the state. And so I mm-hmm. I, I think if if somebody wanted to write this paper, it may have already been written. You could you you may be able to trace the the move from. Um, freedom of religion to freedom of worship that we've kind of undergone in the last 10 years in this country. You may be able to trace that to this letter because I think, I think really what he's talking about here is freedom of worship rather than freedom of religion in the sense that religion is something that fills every sector of your life instead of something you do occasionally. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think you're, I think you're about right there. And I mean, you know, you might want to qualify that a little bit and say that this is articulating a more general sentiment that comes down to us. But yeah, I mean, you can definitely see the contours of that, you know, sort of chosen church, uh, not in the sense that God chose, but in the case that in the sense that the people in the pews chose, uh, working in here, but we're going to get there. We're going to get there. Um, David, the, the, the text distinguishes pretty clearly between what the civil magistrate has the right authority to do and what human beings not acting with the authority of the government have the right to do. Mm-hmm. Um, and what's interesting here is that, you know, the church as a polis, you know, one of those notions that readers of, of Stan Hauerwas and, you know, other sort of postmodern theologians are, are looking for just never appears. So, I mean, why does Locke insist on such a strong distinction between force for the civil government and persuasion for the private citizen and not much remainder between as he proceeds? Hmm. Well, one reason uh, I, I think probably historically he doesn't uh, he doesn't quite come out and say this in so many words, but he is reflecting on um, long, long time you know on in, in England and on the continent of bloody wars and um, rancorous political wrangling over precisely the kinds of things that he's talking about. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I, I, I do think it's, it's important to say that this is not, he's not writing in, in, in a vacuum. Um, he's writing after, you know, centuries of wars of religion, um, and that, that have been fought between Christians over particular kinds of Christianity, which are, um, sanctioned particularly by the magistrate. Um, that's, you know that's his context, but he makes this distinction. Uh, it's it seems to me that he's he he he's really breaking it down in terms of what we do with our body and what we do with our soul. Mm-hmm. Uh, that the magistrate rules the sphere of body, and religion is the sphere of soul. So that uh, civil interest, he say, in, he says, includes life, liberty, health. And the indolency of body, I don't know, is that, I don't know what that is. Is that my ability to sit around on the couch and eat pizza rolls? Um, and the possession of outward things such as money, land, houses, furniture, and the like, and the like. So things having to do with body stuff, things having to do with property, both possessions and lands and finances. Um, and that the magistrate is there to, to defend um, those civil interests from encroachment from from others. So uh, to give laws, to receive obedience, and to compel by the sword, those are the powers of the magistrate. And the magistrate exercises those powers when one citizen threatens the civil interest of another citizen. Um, somebody steals my goat. Somebody burns mm-hmm. my house down. You know, Somebody sets me on fire. Um, it's the magistrate's job to step in and deal with those kinds of things. And because the realm of the magistrate is the realm of the body, it is through force of body that the magistrate's power is ultimately exercised. Mm-hmm. Uh, in the, the church, however, the church then I take to be a voluntary society of men. So voluntary having to do with will joining themselves together in their own accord, having to do with will, and according to the public worshiping of God in such manner as they judge acceptable to him and effectual to the salvation of souls. And so here, uh, 
church is about worshiping God and the salvation of souls, so all soul things, uh, and it is joined by voluntary action, by the force of will, and those those who are in it continue to remain in it because of will. So uh, if someone unchooses that, uh, persuasion is for is the, is the the mode of the mode of power in the realm of the will and of the intellect. Mm-hmm. Persuasion is in like convincing, right? Not because per- persuasion. It, it's weird that he would use that term because persuasion mm-hmm. and force sound much more like synonyms to me than opposites. Right. Right. <laughs> that, well, that's because we're reading this after Michel Foucault. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. Fair enough. <laughs> <laughs> well, if if you take it from uh, as um, the only way to persuade a will is to get that will to move of its own accord. There you go. Right. The only way to mm-hmm. get someone to choose is to lead them to think a series of thoughts that then activates their will to move in the in the, in the direction you want it to go. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so yeah, fair enough. I'm just being difficult. You yeah. know how I am. Oh, I I, I know. I know. Uh, the, the idea that you could compel the will of another is 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 it sounds like the the lock of this letter would find that notion fundamentally goofy and contradictory. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, which is which is the whole point of a lot of this. So, um, by making that kind of distinction, bodies on one hand minds with thoughts and wills on the other hand um mm-hmm. he's he has sequestered those spheres and then the powers that are appropriate to them right do you, do you guys think that's true that you can't you can't compel somebody to will something uh no i don't but i'm also reading this after orwell's 1984 with the horrifying room 101 scene right or or let's take a less horrifying version so so oh, do pro- we have to <laughs> well, I, I, because I want to make I want to make it clear that it's not all bad. Uh-huh. Crown, Crown has mandatory chapels, and I think the idea is they want people to they want people to want to go to chapel, but people don't naturally want to do that. And so, if they compel them to, if you don't go to a certain number, you you know you're on suspension or whatever. Mm-hmm. If you compel them to, perhaps after several years of being compelled to, you will want to. It changes your will. Mm-hmm. Which is kind of a James yeah. K. Smith argument, right? Yeah, it is. And I mean, I, and this is the kind of mentality that Jamie Smith is arguing against, right? I mean, Locke very clearly, as, as David laid down so nicely there, uh, locates the desires in the intellect and fears in the body. And I mean, he really kind of assumes a pretty tidy division between the two. So, I mean, mm-hmm. if you do compel someone, like Michael was just saying, you are using an instrument of fear and coercion, and therefore the will, by definition, will never desire to do the thing. It will simply fear the consequences of doing the thing. Whereas, you know, if you persuade by rational argument, because that is touching the mind rather than the body, uh, it is, you know, drawing someone into it uh, on, on the level of will rather than on the level of fear. And and you're right, Michael. I mean, I you know. I, I also, when I read this, I think, wow, you know, I mean, what kind of vision of humanity divides these things so neatly? Because, you know, uh, the way that I would tell my own story, there, there's not anywhere near that tidy a divide. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, and I just, he, he, he seems to assume, which would have been quite normal to assume in the time he's writing, the human beings are these rational consumers who, yeah, who absolutely. Weigh, weigh options and, and choose the one that is most beneficial to them. And I, mm-hmm. you know, I, I think it's easy enough for us to say from the 21st century, well, that's not the whole truth of what human beings are. Yeah. Right, right, right. I mean, reading this thing after Marx and Freud is definitely a different text. Well, and, and, and after so many, uh, so many years of self-conscious, um, and unconscious manipulation through advertising that we all know is going on and we all know that they're doing it and we know that the, and we know the ways that they do it. And yet it's still on some level works, even if they do have to kind of sometimes use looping ironies in order to circumvent mm-hmm. our knowledge of what they're doing. It, it might work on you, David, but uh, I obey my thirst. <laughs> <laughs> I want well, a Big Mac now. Mm-hmm. Saying the word advertising. Yeah. I, I'm going to have it my way. 
<laughs> well, I mean, one one premise that I do want to grant him, which is that uh-huh. direct direct force, um, mm-hmm. you can't make someone want something by directly forcing them to have it. Right, right. Um, you know, I I have a son who compulsively refuses all food. Like if he, <laughs> if he doesn't know that food, he won't eat it. Right. I mean, you could put like here is chocolate. Like like for his first birthday, we put a chocolate cupcake covered with chocolate in front of him. You know, David, act- sugar's like heroin. You you guys should have your children taken away from you. Well, I know. <laughs> well, he acted as if we were attempting to poison him. Mm-hmm. He's pro- right? he's probably just read the New York Times. Well, clearly. <laughs> Yeah. So, you know, I mean, we had to basically like, like, no, no, seriously, like, like get some, get some icing on the tip of, on on the tip of a finger. And, and he's like, "Ah, ah, 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 ah." and then I get it on his tongue and it's like his demeanor utterly changes. He's like, oh, wait, wait, what? That's you just saw the addiction process begin. (laughs) That's right. Yes, exactly, exactly, exactly. (laughs) Um, yeah, I'm his pusher, man. Um, first one's free. Yes. (laughs) First one's always free. Um, shoot. But, you you know, I couldn't make him desire that on the inside. Mm -hmm. But once he tasted it, he had plenty of desire on the inside. Mm -hmm. Um, I mean, that, that, that's, that's one of the ways in which I think Locke's easy dichotomy doesn't quite work. Yeah. Right, right. And I, I want to—I mean, I want to make it clear that number one, the, this—the kind of compelling you to change your desires doesn't always work. I think mm-hmm. we have plenty of seniors who still wouldn't go to chapel if they weren't forced to. Oh, I sure. Think, I don't think, for example, that making us pay our taxes makes us want to be more charitable. Although uh, I think there's an argument that that says if, if if you're forced to pay taxes, you you might become charitable. I don't I don't know that that works. Nor do I think it's always moral to do so. Nor would I necessarily trust a secular state to choose the morality toward which I'm being pushed. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the the thought I was having, Michael. I mean, is, is very much uh, resonating with yours. I mean, I think that there are good reasons to prefer the policies that John Locke prefers without necessarily deferring to his anthropology. I agree mm-hmm. with that. I, in fact, I think his anthropology is fairly dangerous. Mm-hmm. And again, you can tell all three of us are, you know, Alistair McIntyre slash Jamie Smith slash <laughs> Sigmund <laughs> Freud readers. I, <laughs> which I had a hunch would happen when I picked out yeah. this text and uh, my hunch was right. <laughs> Yeah. I, I'm just glad it's easier to read than understanding our uh, essay concerning human understanding. Oh, oh heavens, yeah, yeah. yeah this one, this one, just kind of—if you're—if you're at all used to 17th century prose, this one, this one does just kind of glide through. It really does, yeah. I mean, that—that's why I picked it for early in the semester because it would be a relatively easy read. Well, well Michael, a lot of oh, go ahead, David. Uh, I mean, just for our readers, there's also a lot of redundancy here. In the sense that that several times he kind of goes back over the same the same ground again and again, and so it's it's not exactly like uh, essay concerning human understanding for me. One of the reasons why it was why it was difficult is because he'll kind of make some stabs in a conceptual direction, and then he'll build on that whether you actually got it or not. <laughs> well, and the, and the this, other thing is, as Americans, this is kind of the air you live and breathe. Yeah. yeah. So, so, so there, there's nothing new to learn in some ways. It's just making explicit what has been implicit. Whereas essay concerning human understanding is a bizarre to us system of metaphysics, um, much of which contemporary science rejects. So it's it's really an imaginative leap to read that text as opposed to this one. Right. Mm-hmm. Right. I mean, I, I would you guys say it's roughly analogous to the difference between Kant's critiques versus Kant's on enlightenment in terms of difficulty. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Mm -hmm. Well, it's uh, to me, it's the difference between Aristotle's metaphysics and Aristotle's Nicomachean ethics. Yeah, there you go. That's a good, that's a good parallel. That is metaphysics are always harder. Yeah, they are. They are. 
Well, Michael, I want to dwell on one of Toleration's signature phrases, that free and voluntary society that David looked like. We've already kind of hinted at this, but I mean, take a swing at showing us a little bit more explicitly what that phrase's negative might be. What would a church look like that's unfree and involuntary, and why would such a state offend John Locke? Uh, that state would be, would have some sort of compulsory membership. So either you would be a member by virtue of who your parents were or by where you were born, or Mm -hmm. it could be a denomination that evangelizes at the tip of a sword as almost all Christian denominations did the century before Locke is writing, right? The the Mm. Catholic church did it, various Protestant sects do it. So, so, I mean, that's what he's talking about. He even goes so far as to say that no one's born into a church, which I think quite a few Christians would take issue with. I mean, if you're baptizing, if you're baptizing infants, guess what? Your, your, your children are born into the church Mm -hmm. yeah, or at least they're, at least they're entered into it six days later or whatever. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And that this is one of the reasons my adult baptizing tradition really loves John Locke. (laughs) <laughs> and, and again, the issue is that he, he's clearly holding a person's conscience to be inviolable. You, you, uh, to force mm-hmm. someone to be a member of a church is to force him to act against his conscience. So it breaks the social contract, which is a phrase I don't think we've used yet, uh, but that is certainly relevant here. Mm-hmm. I, I say, think he goes, yeah, go ahead. Oh, I was going to say, say a little bit more about the connection to the social contra- contract concept. Now, I must say, I have read Hobbes on the social contract, and I've read Rousseau on the social contract, but I've never read Locke. But the the social contract says that before the existence of civilization, people lived in a state of nature. And that state of nature could have been, uh, uh, Hobbes says that uh, life under the state of nature would be nasty, poor, brutish, and short. Um, Mm. Or it could (laughs) just be Rousseau, who says, well, it wasn't nasty, poor, brutish, and short, but there's an awful lot of things you couldn't do. You know, you you need to come together in order to accomplish certain ends. And once mm-hmm. you do so, you do so by voluntarily entering into a society whereby you cede certain rights in exchange for certain other rights. Uh, natural rights for social rights, I think, I think is Rousseau's um, phrasing. I can't really remember. Um, mm-hmm. So the, the social contract is very much this this voluntary uh, voluntary society, frankly. And so, in some ways, Locke is just just transporting uh, the social contract into the sphere of religion. Now, th- that's what makes it so funny to me that he says no one is born into a church because last I remember, I don't remember signing off on any kind of social contract. I was definitely born into it. It was not a choice for me. Mm-hmm. So, I, I, I think I think already there you start to see the cracks in in this whole, whole social contract notion. Um, and again, as I said, this is a very Protestant version of what a church is because it's all about free choice and rational decision. He see, I see very little in him that suggests that people join churches for any reason other than that they believe in their doctrines. And, and right, right. I, I think people join churches for an awful lot of different reasons that he doesn't he doesn't mm-hmm. really seem to consider. And as as I said, it's a very enlightenment vision of what church is. It's very restricted. Yeah. Again, it, it, it suggests that religious life is sequestered into this building, and the rest of the time you belong to the state, so the mm-hmm. social contract. Well, we need to say, not not just Protestant, but a very specific strain of Protestant, because I'm pretty sure Lutherans are going to throw stuff at you if you start saying that, you know, children aren't born into the church. Well, Lutherans um, are like, barely Protestant, right? <laughs> Likewise, an awful lot of Presbyterians are going to throw it to you too, but then they're going to say church does not does not mean the the invisible communion of saved saints, but rather the the visible community of God, and mm-hmm. our, and 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 which which would include uh, which would include the children. Um, so I mean, it, it's it's not quite as neat in all of Protestantism as as Locke makes it. And of course, if you believe in election, people mm-hmm. not only are born into the church, they were members of the church before they were born. Mm-hmm. In some mysterious sense, yes. So, uh, you know, Locke's, Locke's principles here seem overly narrow, and I'm suspicious of the social contract theory anyway. I just mm-hmm. can't think of anything better to replace it. Right. Well, and I mean, you know, just to allude back to something that Michael, you you talked about already, you know, this is 
a text that emerges to some extent out of the 30 years war out of the, you know, the bloody conflicts between the Protestant princes of the Holy Roman empire and, you know, the, the, the grand ultramontanist, uh, forces of Rome and then the, you know, very powerful French monarchy, uh, mm-hmm. that, you know, sort of used Catholicism as a, frankly, as an ideology to solidify French royal power. Uh, you know, I mean, I, I, I can understand the suspicion here of, you know, the blending of magisterial power or not magisterial power, magistrate power with magisterial spiritual authority. Mm-hmm. I, I just read, um, reread Candide and and mm-hmm. there's there's quite a bit of echo there i think I, clearly one of voltaire's many targets in that book is the combination of magistrate and churchman that the mm-hmm. Locke is attempting to do away with mm-hmm. right right absolutely absolutely well david Locke mean, doesn't have anything with uh with women marrying monkeys and stuff like that right or or women with buttocks missing because <laughs> frankly Voltaire's just more fun than John Locke let's just go ahead and lay that on the table <laughs> well there are not a lot of people who aren't more fun than uh, John Locke and there aren't a lot of people Voltaire's not more fun than this is true enough this is true enough I think we can yeah. uh, basically agree with that yep. well David uh, Locke doesn't leave churches without recourse when their members go astray uh, but he does insist that the discipline of the church should never go further than expulsion from the community so what theological and what civic reasons does he offer for such a distinction the theological reason is again he comes back to this definition of a church as a voluntary society Uh, however this voluntary society precisely because it is voluntary has the freedom within itself to determine what its own internal um, rules for membership are, so to mm-hmm. speak. Um, it, it gets to decide what constitutes a member in good standing of itself. Um, so uh, if, if a member is uh, believing or behaving in ways that are not conducive to, uh, or not, not, don't comport with uh, that community's vision of, of, what its members are, uh, then it, it has the right to, um, to confront them, uh, to attempt to persuade them otherwise. Uh, and then, uh, failing, failing a successful persuasion back into the fold, um, and exclusion from, from that, uh, voluntary society. But that is again, as far as it can go. Um, mm-hmm. because the principle of, rational voluntary assent um can't extend any further right um you you can't put you can't push that anymore so uh the 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 distinction there with the with the civil with with the civic reason is that uh it, it doesn't make sense for example uh if if you leave my church that i then take your house right uh because Unless it's a that, parsonage that, See, okay, yeah, that 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 that's that's where it's going to start getting sticky because uh-huh. uh, you know, as one who has had association with Presbyterian churches in the South, um, that the, there's a lot of living memory that's going to say, yeah, at some point, real estate and wealth starts to impinge upon this stuff, Mister mm-hmm. Locke. So, um, yeah, but. Uh, the 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 civic authority is is the one who who controls the you know, exchange of goods and maintenance of personal property and so forth, um, and so it, it would not be appropriate for the religious authority to have those kinds of civic sphere consequences for theolog- religious sphere uh, actions. Mm-hmm. I mean, what what am I? I mean, he 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 goes into some kinds of details with examples of of what kinds of things are um, uh, worth doing these kinds of things about. But what would we want to uh, anything anything else that we would need to explain this principle? I, I guess one of the things that I find interesting about this is that uh, you know once again, as Michael noted earlier, I mean this has become 
atmospheric for American Christians to such an extent that, I mean, if you think about um, horror stories that, you know, people tell about, you know, their church life, I mean, you think of, you know, the sort of uh, industry of, you know, why I left evangelicalism books. Uh, mm-hmm. I mean, it basically follows this template, right? I mean, you know, the ultimate thing that these churches do to people seems to be to either say bad things to them or to not allow them to come back in. And, you know, I'm not trying to diminish either one of those can do genuine harm to a person. Uh, but, you know, I mean, it wouldn't there's even no be... There's no auto-defe? Well, there's no auto-defe, but then also, I mean, uh, you know, the structure of those kinds of narratives already assumes that those are the ultimate devices that are within a church's reach, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I mean, if you go past that, uh, then, I mean, our instinct and, and I, I, again, I mean, my, I, I can tell it's my instinct because when I say this, I, it, it just seems self-evident that if it's anything beyond expulsion from the community, then it becomes not a matter for church discipline, but for civil law and, and criminal law specifically. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, I mean, it's, um, you know, in the abstract, I can say that, you know, John Locke is, uh, seeding all of this authority and all of this centrality to the state. Uh, but when I imagine actual concrete stories of people with bad church experiences, uh, I basically agree with his categories and I, and I'll have to admit, I, uh, just on a, you know, a a knee jerk level, I say, well, of course that has to be it. But Mm -hmm. I recognize that, I mean, that, that the fact that my knee jerks, uh, is also a product of my immersion in these ideas. Mm -hmm. Uh, Michael saved me from this body of death. (laughs) <laughs> I don't know how to do that. <laughs> Famous rhetorical polling questions for 500 Alex. Um, yeah. I, I feel like one of the, one of the difficulties uh, here is that when we, when we see these kinds of things happen, um, uh-huh. uh, w- I think we appreciate so much more the social cost of being excluded from a community mm-hmm. that what for him is, well, this is clearly a reasonable place to draw the line. You just get excluded from the community. Yeah. To us, that does seem like a dramatic height of action because right. it is. Yeah. Uh, but what's the alternative? Allow the state to, to tell us who can and can't belong. Well, or, I mean, the other extreme is, and I mean, that this is actually the case I had in mind, and I was trying not to say it, but I mean, it works better if I actually get to the concrete, okay. is that, I mean, in the case of the Roman Catholic Church's child sex abuse scandal, I mean, what scandalized people the most is that it wasn't immediately turned over to the civic government, that it was handled in-house. Right. Now, part of that is that, you know, the people were given more opportunities to abuse children. I mean, that is absolutely an abuse. That is absolutely beyond the pale. But my first instinct is, well, when it goes there, it's no longer church business. It's automatically criminal law business. Mm-hmm. Right. And again, you know, even when I try to think otherwise, I find myself accusing myself. Now I'm going from, you know, St. <laughs> Paul to Walt Whitman. Uh, but I wonder, I mean, to what extent is that a reasonable self-accusation on its own terms? And to what extent am I just incapable of imagining a possibility beyond what Locke is laying down here? I don't know. I can't, I'm not sure I can imagine one beyond it either. Yeah. yeah. I mean, yeah, do you see what I mean? I mean, you know, I, I, cause that, that's the thing. I mean, I would like to be the, uh, you know, the intellectually superior one here and say, oh, look at all those enlightenment thinkers trapped within these categories. Mm-hmm. But they are the categories within which I think, too, when the chips are on the table. Well, but then there's the there's the cases that that, you know, that, that rub up against that rub up against each other, because um, what if uh, me being excluded from the community also means depriving me of my livelihood if I am for instance, um, an employed minister within a particular denomination, and then I come out and declare myself to be directly a thwart to that de- to that denomination's distinctives. Uh-huh. Um, you know, I, I, I say, well, well, yes, I'm a Presbyterian, but but by golly, I'm an Arminian Believer's Baptism Presbyterian who who quite likes congregational polity. Thanks. Mm-hmm. 
Um, and the Presbytery says, yeah, <laughs> you're not a Presbyterian anymore. Is, isn't um, that the risk you run by picking a profession? Man, now I sound like Locke. By, by, picking, a, by picking a profession <laughs> yeah. that has theological standards you have to adhere to? Mm-hmm. Oh, sure, sure. And I mean, I, you know, a parallel case to the one David just suggested, uh, you know, the fellow who I guess is a couple of years ago now decided to be an atheist for a year. And, you know, his sponsoring denomination said, all right, we will help you by that experiment. You know, atheists do not receive money from the Pentecostal church, so neither will you. Right. <laughs> and, and doesn't that seem reasonable? I mean, you can say, you can say well, the Arminian thing, that's a, that's a minor piece of theology. But I, I, I don't think people outside a denomination should be deciding what pieces of theology are yeah. major and minor for them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Now, I'm not saying that it's unreasonable to deprive that person of their livelihood, but their livelihood is one of the is one of the things that Locke places within the sphere of the civic. Right. 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 Yeah. So, you in know, other words, I mean, yeah, it's that's another my place only where point. the categories get squirrely, mm-hmm. even if in other cases we can't think beyond them. And maybe we shouldn't. I I, I should mm-hmm. go ahead and tell listeners I'm not sure that's a bad thing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, like yeah. I said, I I just have a hard time articulating. Why it's yeah. a good thing. Well, the other thing with the child abuse, with the child abuse scandals, one of the factors, mm-hmm. um, not the main factor. I just want to make this entirely clear that I'm right. not like, like, and by the hey. way, we're also aware that like this happens in Protestant churches too. It's yes. just that right, one right, got yeah. all the, that well, one got I'll, all the press. I, I'm just, and like, at schools just, and in gyms and in any, any other place where vulnerable people congregate. Yeah, yeah. I, I just yeah. I, I want to anticipate the angry emails that someone's already writing and saying, "Okay, yes, I realize I was an idiot not to make that broader." Well, okay, pe- <laughs> the peculiarly the, the the peculiar complication in 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 the case of of of, of those Catholic uh, abuses within the Catholic system mm-hmm. is the precise theology of confession that that you confess your sins. Uh, to to your confessor as part of as part of uh, what is what is proper for repentance, um, but what you say is uh, your the lips of the confessor are sealed. Yeah. Um. Except except for some very very specific, and they are spelled out in church law. Very very specific circumstances in which you can uh, of of what you can say and to whom, and so. Uh, if you know, and e- 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 even if uh, a, a murderer came into and, and, and confessed and confessed a murder to you know some local priest and all the it, the priest couldn't then immediately run to the police. There would mm-hmm. there would at least be some kind of consultation that he would have to do in order for the seal of confession to be waived. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so, you know, in, in this case, we have, you know, the church actually having some kind of dogmatic reasons for distinguishing between what the, what Locke calls sins and crimes. Mm-hmm. And uh, that in that particular church context, that's not necessarily something that in every case a priest can make on his own conscience. Right, right. Well, and then I, th- I think of other cases, and I, I had a hunch this question would be the one that we'd camp on for a while. Uh, you know, as I said, I was at uh, Theology Beer Camp this last week, and I met, you know, Christian and Amy Pyatt from the Homebrew Culture Cast. And their church has recently declared themselves a sanctuary for uh, refugees and migrants. Mm-hmm. And so, I mean, there is, you know, um, a local assembly of the faithful, you know, standing potentially in defiance of. Uh, government edict. And again, you know, I mean, that's a case where I want to say, yeah, I mean, you know, that's precisely what the church should be doing. Even mm-hmm. though in the other one, I, you know, my instinct is to say, no, the church should immediately hand that over to the civil magistrate and get a criminal prosecution going. So uh, once again, you know, I, what what I'm having trouble with is not, you know, the right and wrong of it, but the, do I have any kind of standards for adjudicating between those cases that I would approve of a church defying the civil authority and those mm-hmm. in which I would say the church should not defy the civil authority. Well, I've got a, I've got a standard for you. Hit the, me. The, uh, the, the Pyatt's church 
is open about this. They're making it a theological matter and they are uh-huh. broadcasting it to everybody, including the government, that they're doing it. So in that case, I, I would say it falls under the, the Martin Luther King rules, which is you yeah. break an unjust law and then you accept your punishment for it. Okay, who that's good. What, who, that's good. On the yeah. other hand, the Catholic Church, as far as I know, has, has not has not claimed that child molestation is not a bad thing. All, all all of this was happening under cover of darkness. It was it was secret, and they they did their mm-hmm. best to keep it a secret from the government and from everybody else. So I, I would say that's a big difference. The first is a principled stand, and the mm-hmm. other is is something that they clearly knew was wrong. Mm-hmm. Okay, that's fair enough. Yeah, no, that thank you for helping me think about that because that's that that was something that was troubling me. And and mm-hmm. it's interesting. I mean, once you go that direction, I mean, it seems almost as if you know, the tradition of Henry David Thoreau and Mahatma Gandhi and Martin Luther King are a sort of extension of this logic so that the state itself becomes secondary to a sort of cosmopolitan moral conscience. Mm-hmm. Well, and, and I do think uh, Locke, doesn't, Locke doesn't dwell on this enough, but I think we're, we're edging over into making the observation that uh, the 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 conversation that determines which of the which which things fall under the 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 authority of the magistrate and which things fall under the sphere of the church is not a monologue on the part of the magistrate right right which uh a lot of times i feel like in our culture uh the magistrate assumes that it has the authority to monologue about what it is what is its business but right. I, I think and, I think Locke would affirm that the the church the the magistrate does. I don't I don't see a whole lot in here where the the church is going to get a say about what the limits of the state are. Mm-hmm. Hmm. Yeah, I think you're right. I think you're right. And maybe they shouldn't. I don't know. Like again, I would like my church to have such a say, but I'm not sure that I could say the same of every single religious congregation in the country. <laughs> Well, I mean, there is there is still, like you said, Michael, there is the the Martin Luther King route, which is um, we 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 stand athwart this declaration of the magistrate, but we do so publicly, and with the willingness to uh, receive the sword if the sword is drawn. And I, I mm-hmm. think you've got to respect that, no matter what the issue they're standing up for mm-hmm. is breaking the yep. law and accepting the punishment like that. That's a brave thing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, and using letter from Birmingham, letter from Birmingham jail logic, I mean, you do that in order to rouse the conscience of the population at large, um, so that a new conversation about what what is appropriate for the magistrate um, is is hopefully had, but from the perspective of this kind of Lockean persuasion. And I mean, this is this is the. This is the good thing about the, living in a representative democracy: is the state is mm-hmm. not monolithic, at least not yet. Right. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, um, mm. I'm going to leave that on the table, uh, and I'm going to say what Michael likes to say because he's right. Uh, any single text episode that we're going to do is going to leave out some things. So yeah. let's go around the horn here, and we'll start with Michael. Uh, and highlight a passage or two from the text that also might bear some reflection. I am very interested in the degree to which church-state separation is beneficial to churches and not just to the state um, concerning their theological purity. So Locke says, We must acknowledge that the church is, for the most part, more apt to be influenced by the court than the court by the church. So mm. it, it, to, when, you, when you have the church controlling the government, you've actually... You've actually corrupted the church, um, and and it would be very difficult to not do so, uh, because because mm-hmm. worldly power is always going to be a temptation. So I I thought that was very interesting. Mm. David, I, I'm trying to decide which things to talk about now and which things to talk about at the end. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, there are kind of two of the same question here at the end of the show. Yeah. Uh, I do uh, think that he, he's got some really interesting discussion about what happens um, when the magistrate becomes a member of, of a particular sect and uh, the, the, the borders that are drawn even within uh, 
the life of a single person uh, within their own spheres. It, re- it reminds me of, uh, in, in, in some ways, of uh, the, the king's two bodies notions um, mm-hmm. that you see in, in uh, early modern political thought. Um, and also Kant's What is Enlightenment, where he talks mm-hmm. about the, mm-hmm. the, the clergyman having to be two people at once. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I I think that's I think that's interesting, um, and in in, uh, in 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 a lot of ways, it, it, uh, I I, I want to pull in. Uh, is it, is it, is it, is it Hauerwas or is it Brigamon that uh, is so down on Constantine? Oh, that would be Hauerwas. That Hauerwas. Okay. <laughs> yep. Anyway, I I, I, I mean be, ne- I, neither one's a big fan, but Hauerwas has made a career of it. Yeah, I, I think it would be interesting to 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 kind of lo, lo, look at some of those uh, anti-Constantinian things and see how much of the assumptions that go into that critique are lining up with Locke's notions of of where the magistrate's two bodies ought not to intersect. Because mm-hmm. um, th- th- there seemed to me to be some overlap there um, that maybe informs some. Uh, as you called them, Anabaptist assumptions of where church and state stop, that mm-hmm. other Christian traditions don't necessarily draw the line in the same place. Mm-hmm. Which, which makes, uh, which can make some of what's going on in Locke. He, he, I kept thinking, man, you were making an awful lot of assumptions. <laughs> you, you being John Locke or you being Nathan Gilmore? Uh, John Locke. Uh, oh, okay, okay, okay. <laughs> about the nature of, well, I mean, at one point he says, you know, what is the point of Christianity? Point of Christianity is to find the appropriate mode of worship that will appease the deity and win his favor so that you can have salvation. <laughs> yeah, quite at a definition. Po- at yeah. which point the Lutheran in me catches fire and wants to nail things to doors. Uh-huh. <laughs> 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 you know, so uh, there, there's just these these premises that he starts from, and 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 that one premise is something that he then rules from and says, okay, because this is the purpose of religion, that means all of these other kinds of things. But I mean, Locke's what if own I... religious faith was pretty heterodox, wasn't it? Oh goodness, I should know this, but I don't offhand. He he denied some major doctrine, and now I can't remember what it is. Was he a Sicinian? You're going to have to remind me what Sicinianism is, David. <laughs> I'm sorry. Uh, I, I know the second great rule is never go in it with a Sicinian when death is on the line. Yes, exactly. <laughs> um, I, I think they were like s- some kind of Unitarian. Um, yeah, uni- that's basically what I remember. Unitarians who were more polite about Jesus. <laughs> mm-hmm. I don't and, know. and you know a lot of a lot of those enlightenment guys would fit that description I think so mm-hmm. right right yeah so any, I mean anyway it makes sense if if he was heterodox it makes sense that his definition of Christianity would seem strange to us although everybody's right, orthodox right. in his own mind yeah that's right I mean it, he his his whole ideas of of what the church is and how it's formed and it would just be so completely weird to centuries and centuries of Christianity. Right. Because um, mm-hmm. ain't nobody up in the mass in the Middle Ages thinking, man, I as a, as a rational adult, uh, as a rational adult have, have come to this particular sect because I was rationally persuaded that it is the most efficacious way to appease the deity. Uh, well, like, which character are you doing, Grubbs? I don't know. My, my accent's vacillating wildly, and I'm offending all of our British listeners. Whatever. Anyways, um, but you know, medieval congregant is not thinking about. Oh wow, all of this is so persuasive. I will voluntarily join this church. <laughs> yeah, I mean, right? Yeah, yeah. And again, I mean, that this is where the Hauerwas, you know, line of questioning comes in. Uh, why do we assume then that we don't get to choose when we are and when we are not a citizen then? Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, th- th- that's the problem with the social contract. Mm-hmm. Yeah, who gets to opt out and, I don't know, move to Montana and build a compound? Yeah, precisely. 
or for that matter to, you know, opt out by, you know, refusing to take up arms in the next war or secede. Mm-hmm. Well, anyway, the, the, the passage I was interested in is, is towards the end of the treatise. And, uh, this is one of those arguments that, I mean, I think just on a civic level, uh, makes a good deal of sense. And I mean, I can see how John Locke is in some senses, uh, kind of the father of the first amendment. Cause he says, uh, you know, there's a, there's a counter argument that says that, uh, and I'll quote here, you will say that assemblies and meetings endanger the public peace and threaten the commonwealth. I answer, if this be so, why are there daily such numerous meetings in markets and courts of judicature? Uh, so in other words, I mean, he goes on to say, uh, yeah, it might be that, you know, if you've got a whole bunch of people who are, you know, loyal to the Pope or loyal to, you know, Islam or, you know, loyal to whatever, that, you know, they're going to be uh, some kind of danger to the Commonwealth. Uh, but how much more dangerous would they be if they were meeting in secret because you wouldn't allow them to meet in, in the open. Uh, mm. and you know, that sort of thing, I mean, just strikes me as a very Miltonic in flavor. You know, I mean, the best thing to do with a bad idea is to put it in the ring with good ideas and let them pound on each other for a while till one of them breaks. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, I mean, John Locke, you know, obviously, uh, partakes of that same sort of spirit of open inquiry uh, and you know, I'm enough of a, a Miltonist that I kind of dig it. <laughs> cool. That makes sense. Well, 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 as you guys said, I mean, and I think, I mean, we're not, we haven't just done it with that last question, but we've kind of been doing this, uh, the whole episode, but, uh, I want to think about this text shelf life. Uh, mm. what, if anything, does this text still stand to offer? Uh, since we at the Christian humanist are about, you know, things that human beings do well. Uh, mm-hmm. What does it still have to offer in the first month of the Trump, Trump administration? David, won't you hit lead off on this one? Most basically, it has uh, it has people query their instincts, <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> right? Um, at, 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 the, at the very least, he's raising topics that that need to be thought about before you know before laws are made and triggers are pulled and all the rest of it. Right. Um, so, so that's important. Uh, but also, uh, he's got this, this one little bit, um, you know, the text that we have don't, doesn't have pages, dear listeners. So pardon for not being able to give a, a good, good citation. Um, well, there's a bit where he talks about how a group that is out of power is constantly calling for toleration. But as soon as the magistrate is, uh, is affiliated with that particular sect, Mm-hmm. <laughs> Once the sword is in their hands, they just kind of go crazy and they forget all about that. Hey, toleration. That is stuff. exactly what I was going to talk about, David. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes. And uh, well, this is not around the horn, so jump in, Michael. Say more things. <laughs> no, you keep going. I was just saying. Uh... Yeah, no, I, I, I'm, I, I, I shall tee it up, but uh, I, I just kept thinking, wow. All of that feels so familiar. Yeah, both both sides in, of our political system call for tolerance when they're when they're the uh, kind of philosophical minority. And then as soon as they get into power, mm-hmm. multiculturalism yeah. is no longer a problem. <laughs> and, and lest you think I'm just making fun of the the Democrats, I, I, you're seeing it happen right now with the Republicans. The same mm-hmm. people who, when they thought Clinton was going to win, said, well, what we need is pluralism. Maybe not so much yeah. anymore. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's true. It's true. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I think that this text raises some good questions and actually lands in some decent places ethically. You know, I mean, don't coerce certain matters, turn certain things over to the civil government. Uh, but, you know, like I've been saying all episode, I mean... What troubled me on this reading, and I mean, you know, I've read this text a number of times, uh, is the, you know, the reasoning that I would give for drawing the line where I do. And, and Michael, I think you helped me think through some of that uh, with the test cases we talked about. But, uh, you know, I, I, I think that this thing does continue have it, to have a shelf life. It's not merely a museum piece uh, mm-hmm. for reasons that you guys just brought up. Uh, but it does, I think, raise more questions than it does answer questions simply because we are reading this after Orwell and Foucault and so on and so forth. Mm-hmm. 
Well, at any rate, listeners, uh, we want you to tell us what you think about John Locke. We've provided a link on the Facebook group. There will also be a link on the show notes on ChristianHumanist.org for this thing. Uh, write in and tell us what you think of John Locke about On Toleration, our take on it, uh, all that kind of good stuff. Uh, and, you know, in the meantime, you can look forward to our next episode, and Michael's about to tell us what that's all about. Well, because we've run out of general topics, we're going to do another single text episode. <laughs> we're going to be talking about Toni Morrison's only short story. Uh, I think it's 1983's Recitatif. Mm-hmm. And if I keep mispronouncing it, it's because I was always told that story was pronounced recitative, and I think it's recitative. Yeah, the, the, the second way there is how I was taught to pronounce it, but I, I might have also been taught wrong. So maybe, maybe listeners, you can educate us on that as well. Uh, I actually never knew that she never wrote any other short stories. So see, even before we start, this is, this is the one, even huh. before we start recording, I'm learning stuff. This is great. Jo- John Barth wrote his first book of short stories cause people never anthologize novels. And I, I always wondered if Toni Morrison huh. wrote recitative so, so she could have something in American lit anthologies. I gotcha. I'll be. Well, at any rate listeners, that's what you have to look forward to next week. Uh, in the meantime, you can find us on ChristianHumanist.org. That's where we announce all new episodes from all of our shows on the network. Uh, you can also email us at TheChristianHumanist at gmail.com. Uh, as you know, periodically we do read those on the air and talk back to our listeners. You can also find us on Facebook. And of course, uh, most helpful and most lovely, if you're willing to do it, is a five-star review on iTunes as the largest distributor of podcast material. Uh, iTunes is the place where a lot of our listeners discover us, so we'd greatly appreciate it if you would rate us there. Christian Humanist Podcast is part of the Christian Humanist Radio Network. Kristen Philippic is our press liaison. Amber Lee Copeland is our intern. And I am Nathan Gilmore in behalf of Michael Farmer and David Grubbs saying, on the 500th anniversary of the Reformation, let your sins be strong, let your faith be stronger. <laughs>